Father, we are grateful for uh, the beauty of this day. When we got up, we were just struck by, uh, really, it's just near perfect. And we thank you. Uh, we thank you for creating it. We thank you for your promise in Genesis. As you said that you would never send a flood like that again. And you also said that um, you would take care of the seasons, the summer and the winter. You control the hot, you control the cold. You control the earth, you control the world, you control the universe. We're not so foolish to think that we could have any great leverage one way or the other. Your, your purposes stand and your promises stand. And we say all that just to say this, that on days like this, because we know you and our blind eyes have been opened to see the truth of the gospel and the greatness of Christ, it's just another one of your gifts. And we are surrounded by your gifts and we've been recipients of your gifts. And it's so easy as we go through life and have our challenges and have our battles and have our trials and, and uh, challenges, it's so easy to lose perspective. It's so easy to focus on what is missing in our lives. But we thank you for perspective that your spirit brings to us, which calibrates us correctly. And when we're calibrated correctly, we see not what we're missing, but we see all that we've been given. And that immediately puts us right and immediately calms our hearts and gives us grateful attitudes and grateful spirits. And it helps us to keep our worries in perspective because you've told us to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. To let our requests be made known unto you in the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we want to be thankful men tonight because it is the only logical and rational attitude to have in light of what's true and what we have been given. We are thankful for your Bible. We are thankful for your word. You have revealed things in that word to us that we never would have found out on our own. You tell us what's true. You tell us about reality. You tell us where we're going. You tell us where we came from. You tell us what you have done for us. And you tell us how you will sustain us until our dying breath. And those words encourage us encourage us, and we live off of those words. They are living words. They are true words. They are not an idle word. They are our lives, as Moses said in Deuteronomy. So tonight, wherever we find ourselves, whatever our circumstances, take these principles tonight and um, drive them home. Put them into our hearts, and then by your Spirit, enable us to apply these truths to our life. We're all dealing with stuff. We're all in the middle of different things. So help us tonight not just to be hearers, but to be doers. To take this and apply it. To take it and use it. To, to, to take it, Lord, and, and live as though it's true, because it is true. How blessed we are, how fortunate we are, among all the people of the earth, to be given your truth. And to know the truth about life, it settles us, it calms us, it gives us hope, it makes our hearts rejoice. So we say these things and pray these things in the name of Jesus, the name that's above every name. Amen. Well, once again, I would invite you to uh, take your Bibles and let's turn to the Old Testament to the book of Boaz. We're continuing our study in the book of Boaz, which is an interesting study because the book of Boaz doesn't exist. However, the book of Ruth does. We're in the book of Ruth. 
Is it unusual for uh, a men's study to study a book named after a woman? Not really, because it's all the Word of God. It's part of the Word of God. I think a case could be made, though, for us to call this book of Ruth the book of Boaz. And we are uh, just concluding chapter 1 in our study. And if I were going to title chapter 1, if I were just going to put a, you know, do an outline like uh, Chuck does on Sundays, which I don't do. But if I were to do that, and I were just to title chapter 1, I would title chapter 1, I'd give it two words. And the two words would just summarize the entire chapter. And the two words would be deep disappointment. That's what, <coughs> that's what chapter 1 is all, <coughs> is all about. It's just about deep disappointment. The deep disappointment of, um, of Naomi and the deep disappointment of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Now, chapter 2 is interesting because chapter 2 is the antithesis of chapter 1. It's the complete opposite. Chapter 1 is deep disappointment. Chapter 2, I would title, divine appointment. There's a complete pivot. There's a complete change. And, and, and it all culminates in chapter 2, verse 1. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what the change is a result of. Um, there is a turning point from chapter 1 to chapter 2 that we're introduced to in chapter 2, verse 1. And the turning point between the two chapters and the turning point between deep disappointment and divine appointment is a man by the name of Boaz. He is a key figure. He is a pivotal figure. When Boaz suddenly shows up, he's not in chapter 1. Chapter 1, you've got all this tragedy, you've got all this calamity, you've got all this difficulty, um, you have all this hardship, you have all this disappointment. Boaz isn't in chapter 1. But when Boaz shows up, everything changes and all is well. A few months ago, I was driving outside of Birmingham, going northeast to do a conference somewhere, and I passed through a very small country town, and the town let me know. They had a sign up, let me know I was passing through the town. The name of the town was All Good. I was in All Good, Alabama. We use the term, it's all good. It, it, it's all good. I was in All Good. All Good, Alabama. They had a gas station and some beautiful country. It was all good. There wasn't any traffic. There wasn't a lot of people. There weren't any tollways. It was just country, cows, and a few people in a gas station. And I'm going to tell you something. It was all good. When Boaz showed up, it was all good. I like what John Phillips says. He says, once Boaz is introduced into the story of Ruth, he dominates it. When he shows up in chapter 2, verse 1, for the rest of the book, he dominates the book, he dominates the story, because this one man is going to make a huge difference in the lives of these two women whose lives have been absolutely shattered and blown apart. They were in deep disappointment until Boaz showed up. Now, as we're going to see as we go through this study, is that Boaz is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Lord Jesus Christ does in our lives, and our lives are broken and shattered. This Boaz was a real guy. He was a historical figure. He really lived. He really existed. We'll meet him in heaven. He's quite a man. And it's quite a story. Now, we're going to finish out chapter 1 this evening. And we're going to see why it is that these two women were in such deep disappointment. And we'll pick it up beginning with verse 19 of chapter 1. One And verses 19 to 21, uh, I've just simply titled it this way. Uh, empty days and a rough road. Because that's what you get beginning here in, in verse 19. Uh, it's a lot different than they thought it was going to be. At least for Naomi when she went out ten years before with her husband Elimelech. Let me get to, uh, let me get to Ruth 1 here. And we'll work our way through verse 19. It says, So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? 
She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Let's back up. Let's get a little context here. Uh, it'll allow me to get my mic on. I'm a professional, David. Don't look at me that way. It's all under control. I can handle septic tanks. I can handle yellow jackets. I can handle fallen oak trees. It's all good. <laughs> We've got a city councilman from All Good Alabama here tonight. Now let's set the context here. Because if we, just, if we just jump into this thing in verse 19, you just can't do that. Uh, they both went until they came to Bethlehem. Who's both? It's Naomi uh, and it's, it's Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Uh, let's just start out by saying this. These are two women who are in, in desperate straits. They are facing poverty and they are facing absolute disgrace. Now, if you back up and pick up the story, the, the reason it says, so they both went until they came to, Jerusalem, to, to Bethlehem. Uh, they're going to Bethlehem, but where are they coming from? They're, they're coming from Moab. If you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1, now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And if you've been with us, I'll just do a quick review. The previous book is the book of Judges, a period that uh, encompassed about 300 years, and the question is exactly what was the time frame, and there are different theories on that as we discussed before the study. But it was about 300 years into Joshua's life to the beginning of 1 Samuel, when uh, Samuel's mother, Hannah, was childless and Ask the Lord for a son, and you remember that. This is, this is pancaked in between those two books. Uh, it was a time in the history of Israel, uh, it was a bad time. It was a real bad time. It was a time of spiritual decline. Uh, it was a time where they left the one true God, and they went after false gods, and they went after idols. And then God would send their enemies and allow their enemies to... to uh, rule over them, and after you know a period of time, uh, so many decades, they would get desperate, and then they'd call out to God for relief, and God would bring along a leader, he would bring along a judge to deliver them, and in the book of, and, and, then, and then they would turn to the Lord, and then there would be peace, there'd be peace on all sides for a season, and then, because now they, they've got a good life again, and things are going well, their hearts are turned back from the Lord, back to idols, they forget the Lord, and they go another step worse than they were before. This happens uh, 12 times in the book of Judges. 12 times. It, it's, it's a time that is characterized by the phrase in Judges, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. I remember reading um, a sermon that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached in 1959 in London, and in 1959, he got up before his congregation in London, Westminster Chapel, and as he was preaching, he looked at the culture, he looked at what was happening in England, and Martin Lloyd-Jones said to his congregation in 1959, he said, we are living in days of exceptional evil. Most of us would cut off our left arm to go back to 59. He wouldn't believe where we are now. But you see, we're just like the book of Judges. Was it, was it bad in 59? Well, gosh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was, uh, how old was he? He was in his 60s in 1959. Compared to what it was when he was a kid, was it bad? Oh, it was exceptionally bad. Here we are 50 years later. Was that bad? No, that was pretty good. 59 was the good old days. You see, someone will say, man, it can't get worse. Oh, yeah, it can. Oh, yeah, it can. It can get worse, and it will get worse. Once again, there's your encouragement for the day. Because as Ecclesiastes says, the hearts of men are insane. 
We, 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 we just keep finding ways to go deeper and deeper into sin. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. So that was the book of Judges. That's where we are. That's what was going on in Israel. Because of what was happening in Israel, it says in verse 1, a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. You read the next verse, it's this guy Elimelech who is the husband of Naomi. This is how Naomi found herself in Moab. She was from Bethlehem, but famine hit. Why did famine hit? And once again, I'll make this real quick. Famine hit because the people had wandered away from God. And one of the ways that God would judge his people, one of the ways that God would discipline his people, is that God would use uh, what, what, what we call just uh, Mother Nature. That's what we call it, a famine. Oh my gosh, you know, or, or we think famine, you know, we, we, we think this stuff comes from the Weather Channel. It doesn't come from the Weather Channel. God controls all this stuff. Amos 3.6, can a calamity come upon a city unless the Lord sends it? And we're so secularized in our thinking, we say, well, well, that's not true. God wouldn't do it. He would do it. He says he does it. In Isaiah 45, he says, I am the God who causes well-being. When things are going well in your life, when things are prosperous, when, when things are good in the nation, when there's prosperity, when there's peace, when we're not at war, uh, that comes from the Lord. I am the God who causes well-being. And then in the next breath, he says, I am the God who causes well-being and creates calamity. Amos 3.6, can a calamity come upon a city unless the Lord sends it? God is in control of all of these things. And people who used to understand or looked at life through the lens of the Bible understood that these different things, when there's famine, what do you do? You get on your knees and pray. In Massachusetts, in the early years, when there was no rain, what did they do? They got on their knees and prayed and called for a, national, a, a day in the state of prayer and fasting. But see, we don't do that anymore. They did it in Georgia a little while back because they were so desperate for rain that the governor of the state had to forget all the... He, the sucker was desperate. The water in Lake Lanier was down to nothing. And Lake Lanier is where Atlanta gets their water supply and all the way down to Alabama. There was no water. And he got so desperate. What did he do? Let's get on our knees and pray and ask God to send rain. Because God runs rain. God owns rain. Yes, he does. So there's a famine because God's disciplining his people because they got into idolatry. That's what's happening. Okay? So that's how Naomi, that's how Naomi left Jerusalem. I keep saying Jerusalem. But understand this. Bethlehem is a suburb, if you will, of Jerusalem. It's just five miles uh, south. So they're right next to each other. Okay? Um, so they leave Bethlehem, and this guy Elimelech goes to um, Moab. You see? So that's how she got to Moab, was with her husband. Now we'll come back to him. But what's happened is, it's been 10 years since that occurred. By the way, her husband died, her two sons died, while they were in Moab, which they never should have been in in the first place because the Moabites were the enemies of the people of God. He was never told to go into the land of Moab. But he went ahead and went on his own. And that's another story. We'll touch on that a little bit more and review some of that. But her two sons married Moabite women. And when the Limelech dies and Malon and Chilion die, suddenly you have three women who are destitute and penniless because of the system. And in our previous discussion, we see how Naomi encouraged the two girls to go back to their homes, go back to their land, go back to their people, and go back to their gods. One of the girls did it, Orpah, but Ruth did not do it because she embraced fully the God of Israel, Yahweh. So, so when you get to 19, it says, so they both went, that's Naomi and that's Ruth, so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. That's who you've got here. Now, I need to say something about this phrase. They both went until they came to Bethlehem. They were in Moab, and things have fallen apart, so they're heading back to Bethlehem. Now, I need to say something. Moab was 50 miles away. 
That's no big deal to us. 50 miles, that's, that's no big thing at all. Uh, you got these maps in the back of your Bible. You might turn back, and when you get a map of, you'll get a map there of, uh, of Israel, maybe Palestine in the time of Christ, or the kingdoms of David and Solomon, or the Exodus route and the conquest of Canaan. On that map, if you can find the Dead Sea down to the, on the bottom of Israel, uh, Moab was on the east, on the southeast side of the Dead Sea. All right? Now, the Dead Sea, um, let, let me describe this to you. The Dead Sea sits in this valley in between these two plateaus, these two mountain ranges. On the east is Moab. All right, the mortal enemies of Israel. It, 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 it empties down into the Dead Sea, but as you go east, you're going to go up hills, and into Moab, it's going to, there's going to be a plateau. If you read Numbers uh, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, somewhere in there. If you remember when the children of Israel were coming up out of uh, Egypt under Moses' leadership, they wanted to pass through uh, the Moab territory, and they wouldn't give him permission. In fact, the, the Moabite king had hired a guy by the name of Balaam. And he wanted Balaam, as they looked down upon the people of Israel, he wanted Balaam, he paid Balaam to curse those people. And he paid him, you know, a nice retainer. Balaam shows up, and he doesn't curse them, he blesses them because God controls his tongue. And the guy got all upset, and he said, hey, listen, I didn't pay all that money. And so they work another deal, and he's going to do it again, and he goes to curse them. And once again, he blesses them because God controls his tongue. And if you have a problem with that, Balaam had a donkey who spoke to him. <laughs> he said, well, that can't happen. Well, God can do anything. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, nothing's too hard for the Lord. All right. So you got these two women who are destitute. It's just 50 miles away. But it says they both went to Bethlehem. Now, I want to point something out to you. For them to both make their way to Bethlehem, this was a brutal and difficult journey. If you just look at the map, you go, oh, yeah, it's 50 miles, no big deal. Let me tell you why it was hard. Because in Moab, there were mountains in Moab, there were canyons. They had to make their way down they had to make their way north about 25 miles. And let me tell you something. This area is, is it's like being in an oven. I've been there in July. It, it was a pretty calm day, about 115, 117, 118. Get as high as 130 around there. Uh, now, they're going in early spring, April. It can still be treacherous and it can still be hot. So they're going to make their way north, up along the Dead Sea. Then they've got to cross the Jordan. Oh, by the way, the Dead Sea is roughly, what is it, 1,250 feet below sea level. And that Dead Sea is dead. Uh, that Dead Sea is a remarkable, uh, there's no life in the Dead Sea. It's seven times more acidic and has seven times more salt than the Great Salt Lake. One of the things you can do at the... Uh, dead Sea, because there's so many minerals and there's so much salt and it's just dead, there's so much stuff in the water, you can just uh, float. I don't care if you're one of those guys that weigh 900 pounds and is trapped in your bedroom and is interviewed by Jerry Springer. <laughs> if they cut out your wall and got a hoist and helicoptered you to the Dead Sea, if you weigh 900 pounds, you could float on the Dead Sea. You really could. That's how dead it is. So you'd make your way north, arduous, hot, difficult. You cut across, you got to cross the Jordan River. And then as you cross the Jordan River, and now you're on the west side of the Dead Sea, now you got to start making your way up those hills and mountains because Bethlehem is about 2,300 feet above sea level. So you're going from 1,250 feet below sea level to about 2,300 feet. It was not an easy journey. It was hard. It was hot. It was difficult. It was exhausting. It, it, it was a brutal journey. So they were exhausted. It took a lot for them to go back to Bethlehem. Now, let's go back. Let's go back to Ruth. Well, I'm setting something up here. Verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. 
And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. Is, is that not kind of unusual? The whole city would be stirred because two women showed up? Well, you've got to understand something about Bethlehem. Bethlehem was tiny. Bethlehem is tiny today. It's not a big city. It's very, very small. And it was much smaller. It, Bethlehem was Mayberry. B Bethlehem was Andy Griffith kind of Israel. Um, probably there just wasn't much going on there. Like all good. We're going to milk all good tonight, aren't we? Sort of like all good, actually. Not a lot of people. It's very fertile. A lot of shepherds. A lot of agriculture. But it was just a small little town. That's all it was. So when two women show up, the whole town's talking about them. That's what happens in small towns. Now watch this. All the city was stirred because of them, and the women said, is this Naomi? They hadn't seen Naomi in 10 years. Now watch this. Because remember now, what do we say the two words are that describe chapter 1? Deep disappointment. And if you don't believe that, watch the words of Naomi here. As she appears back in Bethlehem after a 10-year absence, and notice what she says. They say, is this Naomi? Verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. By the, word, the, by the way, the name Naomi means pleasant. That's what it means. She says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara. Mara means bitter. If you don't think this was a woman who would experience deep disappointment, you're missing the significance of this. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Uh, she is angry with the Lord. She is upset with the Lord. She's got issues in her heart towards God and His goodness and His graciousness because all that has happened to her over the last 10 years. Uh, she she uh, amplifies on it in verse 21. Note this phrase. I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Interesting. I went out full but the Lord has brought me back empty. I, I, th I think there's more there than meets the eye. I went out full. She's talking about when she left 10 years prior. And see, I think this is tied in with her husband, Elimelech. Because the more I read this over and over and over, sometimes you've got to read between the lines. We don't have a lot of information about this guy, Elimelech. But as you put together some pieces, as you look at this guy's life, as you look at this guy's profile, if the FBI were to profile this guy, I think they'd come up with some very interesting things. Uh, you, you, you can watch somebody, you can watch somebody's habits, and you can watch somebody's decisions, and by watching their habits and their behavior and their decisions, you can ascertain something about their heart. Can you not? You see. Yeah, you can. John said, you shall know them by their fruit. Someone may claim the name of Christ, but you know them by their fruit. Anybody can speak the name of Christ, but you know them by their fruit. You look at this guy's life. He was a Jew. He knew the truth. My God is king. That was the concept behind his name. But God wasn't his king. Because when you put the pieces together and you look at the occurrence, why, why did he leave Bethlehem in the first place? Because there was a famine. As I look at this guy, I get the sense that this guy was somewhat of a schemer. I get the sense that Naomi's husband was somewhat of a guy who was always three steps ahead of the other guys. He was very calculating. He played his moves very carefully. As I get the sense about this guy, what was going on? What, what would prompt him to leave his family land and his support system? Why would this guy leave in the first place? Well, because there was a, there was a famine. But see, 50 miles away in Moab, there wasn't a famine. Uh, the economy is going well. So what does this guy do? In the middle of the famine, this guy goes ahead and goes over to Moab a, a, a land of incredible idolatry, a land that was devoted to the destruction of his own people, 
But to him, it's no big deal. He picks up his wife. He picks up his kids. We'll just go to Moab for a little while. Uh, very calculating. You get the sense that this guy was a schemer. You get the sense that this guy had some bucks. You get the sense that this guy was thinking through his financial moves. He bought gold at 200 and it was now 1300 He probably, you know, didn't get hurt when everything dropped a few years ago because he sold short. I mean, this, this guy was... He didn't... He, I, I, let me make this point. He didn't leave Bethlehem destitute. He left Bethlehem full. He was in good shape. That's what she said. I went out. What did she say here? I went out full. Elimelech, we went out full. We had money in the bank. We had money. We had capital. We were just going to go briefly sojourn over there. Why? Because this guy's heart wasn't in tune with the Lord. He never should have taken his family into the enemy camp, but he did. Now, here's what happens. You get the sense this guy was trying to outrun the discipline of God. You, you can never out-scheme God. And eventually, his plans, his carefully laid plan, hit a brick wall because he never, it was going to be a short time, he never factored in the fact that he was going to die over there. Never factored in his sons were going to die, but that's exactly what happened. And, and when he died, when the two boys died, you got three women destitute, penniless, and in, with, with, no, with, with really no, no hope of their situation improving. It was bad. It, it, it's really hard to paint how bad it was for these women. Now, I'll tell you something, guys. We've all made our plans. We've all had our dreams, and we've, had all, we've all had our schemes. You know, it's interesting to me, um, 10 years ago, did you foresee yourself where you are today? 10 years ago, as you kind of thought about what was coming, and you know, we, we're guys, we think, well, we'll think out a little bit, you know, you know, maybe, you know, this, and uh, do, you know. And, and some guys are, are really in the planning, nothing wrong with planning, just, you know, write out your plans in pencil. Don't use a Sharpie. Because our plans really work out the way we think they're going to work out. So 10 years ago, did you foresee yourself in the place where you are? A lot of guys, here's what happens to a lot of guys. They find themselves at a certain age. And here's how they viewed themselves in the past 10 years ago. When I get to this point in life that I am today, I'll be down here, up here. But reality is, see, that's your plan. I'm going to be advancing, I'm going to be way out here, and I'm going to be up here, top of the heap, cream of the crop. And then what happens? It's not how it turns out. You find yourself, here's reality, you're not down here up here, you're back. You're back here. Actually, you're not here, you've gone through the door, you're in the men's room. And let me be blunt, you're not on the toilet, you're in the toilet. <laughs> and you never foresaw that. If the truth were to be known, a lot of us are stunned and shocked where we are right now. Because it wasn't our plan. It wasn't what we foresaw. Now, is that true for everybody? Probably not. But for many of us, it is true. Oh, and by the way, when you're not out here, up here, when you're back here, down here, and it can be the result of finances or a family situation or a health issue or... You know, King, I think about Paul Lanier, where Paul was 10 years ago. You guys were a partner in your medical practice, and uh, a lot of you guys remember Paul. You know, he liked to hunt, you know, fly, Work out, beautiful family. Uh, Lou Gehrig's disease wasn't in his plan. And the guy was the guy was in the prime of life, in great shape. I mean, if you look at it, yeah, you know, his premiums weren't high on his life insurance. The guy was in the guy was in shape. 
guy should be 80, 85, maybe 90, hands down. It didn't happen. He wouldn't even be alive in 10 years. See, we just don't know, do we? We just don't know. Uh, here's my point. My point is, is that oftentimes our plans and our ideas and our dreams, what happens? They wind up in disappointment. I want to read something to you about disappointment that comes from John Newton. Now, I read this in here maybe a year ago. John Newton, you guys know, was the author of Amazing Grace, was the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, an amazing story of this man. Amazing Grace was his story. Uh, his father was a sea captain. His dad was gone a lot. His mother was a godly woman, but she died when he was young. And he followed his father to sea. He was a hell raiser. Um, he, um, he was a rebel at heart. He despised authority. He, uh, he was tied up and flogged on a ship. He was a blasphemer of God. Sailors are not known for their civil tongues. But the other sailors, none of them wanted to work on deck with John Newton because he was such a blasphemer of Almighty God, they were afraid to be near him. Because they thought that God might judge him, and they didn't want, they didn't want to get caught in the backwash. He, uh, he worked the slave ships, eventually became the captain of a slave ship. Many voyages. Uh, before he came to know Christ, would rape black women. Didn't think a thing of it. Was miraculously converted over time. Um, continued to be a captain of a slave ship. After his conversion, took several journeys. Yeah, sexually was not involved. That was not an option anymore. It was interesting because he was going back out to take another slave ship out, and suddenly he was, uh, he was sick. He had uh, seizures, never had it before in his life, had like a mini stroke, had never, never been sick a day in his life. And the ship was leaving in 12 hours. They had to get another captain to replace him. And as that ship is going out from Liverpool and going out to harbor and just getting out to sea, suddenly all symptoms left him, and he got up and was completely healthy. He never went to sea again. That started a, a journey for him because as he was no longer going to be, uh, as that ship took off, there was a yearning in his heart because he'd come to know Christ and he had a desire to really know the Word of God. Uh, he, he obtained a position called surveyor of the tides. And what that meant was all the ships that came into the harbor, he would inspect them. He was the customs guy. He was the, you know, he, he, he looked at the manifest. It was, it was a very good and lucrative job, and that's what he had. But as he had that job, he had free time, and he had a hunger for the Word of God that was developing. And his hunger was so great, he would read the Scriptures, but he wanted to know about this Word. So he taught himself Greek, and then he taught himself Hebrew. And then he began to have a desire to share what he had learned in a small Bible. And then he, suddenly he had this desire to be a pastor. A pastor. And they wouldn't touch him with a, with a, with a ten-foot pole. And this desire was growing and, and, and developing, and others were encouraging him. And for five years, that desire was stunted in his life. For five, it was a time of great disappointment. Eventually, he became a pastor, pastored for many, many, many years. One of the ministries that he had was only preaching the Bible and pastoring the church and writing hymns, but he, uh, he was a great emailer. And you know he wasn't. He was a great letter writer. He carried on correspondence with people all over England and in many parts of the world. He wrote so many letters that there are two volumes of his letters. I'd like to read a section to you from his letter of August 17, 1767, on the place of disappointment in the life of a believer. And listen carefully. I want, I want to say to you, this is phenomenal stuff. This is one of the guys you want to learn from. He's getting up in years. This guy's got miles on his tires. He's been around the block. He's grown in Christ. 
There's, there's spiritual muscle. He's a trophy of grace. Listen to these words. It is indeed natural to us to wish and to plan. And it is merciful in the Lord. Now watch this. Watch this. And it is merciful of the Lord to disappoint our plans and to cross our wishes. For we cannot be safe, much less happy, but in proportion as we are weaned from our own wills and made simply desirous of being directed by His guidance. This truth, what truth? The truth that it is merciful of the Lord to disappoint our plans. I don't hear any amens. I don't hear any cheers. Because you see, we love our plans, don't we? We love our plans. And we hey, listen, we're guys. We got a plan, we gotta provide, and we gotta have jobs, and we got, you know, hey, we got a plan. This truth, what truth? That it's merciful of the Lord to disappoint my plans. Watch this. This truth we seldom learn without being trained a while in the school of disappointment. Every guy in here who is growing in Christ is going to go to school. In this, not at Dallas Seminary, or not at uh, Dallas Baptist, or you know whatever the TCU, or you know, you're going to go to school in the school of disappointment. The schemes we form look so plausible and convenient that when they are broken, we are ready to say, "What a pity! What a tragedy!" We try again with no better success. We are grieved and perhaps angry and plan out another and so on. At length, in the course of time, experience and observation begin to convince us that we are not more able than we are worthy to choose a right for ourselves. In other words, we don't know what's best for us. Then the Lord's invitation to cast our cares upon Him and His promise to take care of us appear valuable. I want to say that again, because what he's saying is, when our hopes and dreams and plans and schemes come crashing down and we realize they're not going to happen, let, let, me, let me say this again. When, when those things fall apart, then the Lord's invitation to cast our cares upon Him and His promise to take care of us appear valuable. And when we have done planning... His plan in our favor, in our favor, gradually opens, and He does more and better for us than we could ever ask or think. So, in other words, when our plans come crashing down and our schemes come crashing down, we have nowhere to go except to, except to cast our care on Him. And when we have reached the end of loving our plans, His plan in our favor, watch this, gradually opens. That's what happened to John Newton. It took five years for that to open. Next, next paragraph is significant. Newton says, I can hardly recollect a single plan of mine that had it taken place in a season and circumstance, just as I had proposed, it would, humanly speaking, have proved my ruin. Or at least it would have deprived me of the greater good the Lord had designed for me. We judge things by their present appearances but the Lord sees them in their consequences. Boy, there's wisdom there. I'm under pressure. This is the plan. This makes sense. This is what I need to do. We judge things by present circumstances. The Lord sees them in their consequences. What's going to be the consequence of this decision? Oh, it's rough here, it's up there. You know, it's rough in Beth. Oh, man, I'm going to Moab. Okay, I'll stop. What, what are the consequences of taking your family to Moab? Into idolatry. See, we, 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 as men, we get under pressure. We, and what do we do? We make plans to get out from under pressure. Okay, watch this. We judge things by their present appearances, but the Lord sees them in their consequences. If we could do so likewise... 
we should be perfectly of his mind. But as we cannot, it is an unspeakable mercy that he will manage for us whether we are pleased with his management or not. And it is spoken as one of his heaviest judgments when he gives any person or people up to the way of their own hearts and to walk after their own counsel. You know the worst thing that God can ever do to you is to let you go the way you want to go. Read Romans chapter 1, verse 18. They want to go this way, and he gave them what? Over. He let them go the way that he wanted. But he's a good God. And because he's such a good God, what he does is he crosses us. Crosses our plans, crosses our hopes, crosses our... Why? It's not the best plan. We can't see ahead, but he can. One more shot. It is not necessary for me to be rich, or what the world accounts as wise, to be healthy or admired by my fellow worms. I like that. (laughs) To pass through life in a state of prosperity and outward comfort. These things may be, or they may be otherwise, as the Lord in His wisdom shall appoint. But it is necessary, now watch this, but it is necessary for me to be humble and spiritual, to seek communion with God, to adorn my profession of the gospel, and to yield submissively to His disposal in whatever way, whether of service or of suffering. He shall be pleased to call me to glorify Him in the world. Now listen to this. It is not necessary for me to live long, but highly, inspe- highly expedient that while I do live, I should live unto him. Last sentence. O Lord, help me to say, and it's written in 1700, so you got the King James going on here. O Lord, help me to say, what thou wilt, when thou wilt, and how thy What thy will, when thy will, how thy will. There's wisdom. There's lessons to be learned in the school of disappointment that can be learned nowhere else. Oh, by the way, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. I'm going to tell you something. We come up with some pretty darn good plans, don't we? I mean, can we, can we storyboard or what? Have you ever storyboarded? Yeah, you know, that's the old Disney thing, you know. Before they ever do a movie and animation, they storyboard. They just, they've got these big things and they're just writing out, you know, stories and content. They slap it up on the wall and you, you just put out the whole story. And then you start thinking and you just make it better and better. I mean, can we come up with plans? Can we, oh man, oh man, what if, what, oh my gosh, what if this? And then what if this? I had a guy talk to me this week, and he said, man, this is great. He said, I got to tell you something. A bunch of us who have gotten together, and, we're, and he started laying out this thing, and these guys have got this idea, and, and you know, it sounds pretty good. It just sounds pretty good. Now, what's interesting, these guys are all right around 28, And they're all good guys, they all love Christ. Uh, they've, had, they've had some things, but none of them have really enrolled in a graduate-level course in the School of Disappointment. And as excited as they are, as excited as they are, those plans, which sound great, may not work out. We've been there. We used to be that age. A lot of, some of you guys are in that. Hey, don't quit dreaming and don't keep, you know, don't, don't lose your dreams. But just understand, if it doesn't go the way you anticipated, God's got something better. Let's go to verse 22. Verse 22. I would just call this verse hard times and the nick of time. Uh, She says in 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, 
who had been married to her son, Malan. Uh, here's the thing about Ruth, the Moabitess. Uh, she had been raised by a family with false gods, but she had embraced Yahweh, the one true God. Her heart had been changed, so she turned her back on her country and her land and her family and the false gods and embraced as the one true God. That's why she's coming to Bethlehem. Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Uh, that little phrase, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, is pregnant with meaning. It's perfect timing. They didn't come to... Now, now remember, what's their condition? So we can fly right by this stuff, guys. We can just, oh, yeah, okay, okay, let's go to work, chapter 2. I mean, why are we going so slow through this book? Because there's stuff in this book. There's stuff. There are life lessons in this book. There's a great encouragement just in that phrase, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, let me tell you why that's important. They're without support. They're without husbands, the economic system. They have no way of being provided for. They are destitute. They're in despair. They're penniless. They are in a desperate situation. They are deeply disappointed, and their prospects for change are virtually nil. And some of you are there, too. Because whatever line of work you're in, they're not hiring. Especially guys your age. And they're not hiring at what you were getting. If they hire, they're going to get some guy 23 just out of school. And they're going to pay him a lot less, and they're going to burn that sucker out. That's how it works. It's called paying your dues. And you look at your prospects, and you go, man, you know what? I'm fried. I'm done. I'm toast. I'm history. I love what, uh, well, I'll show you this in a minute. Go to Jeremiah. Uh, can, can I tell you why they came to, to Bethlehem at the beginning of, of the barley harvest? And this is, this is April, it's May. This is the first harvest. First you got the barley, and then about six, seven, eight weeks later, the wheat harvest comes in. They've got no provisions, they've got no help, they've got no way of feeding themselves. Now, I want you to note something. You know why they've made this arduous and difficult journey? They're just, they're just trying to get back to where there's some hope. But have they timed this? Have they planned this? No, you know what? They're trying to survive. What kind of delays were on their journey? We don't know. But let me just say this. They went because they were trying to survive. They didn't plan this out. They didn't. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. And we plan, we dream, we do all this stuff. Nothing wrong with it, but just understand something. Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, watch this, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. That's an interesting passage. Basically, it says this. You don't know what you're doing. And I don't either. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. You say, what does that mean? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture, so I go to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Watch this. The mind of man plans his way. Have you ever done that? Sure you have. We've all done it. We've got to make plans. Nothing wrong with making plans. The mind of man, I'm going to get down here. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. See, this is how we wind up in places we never thought we'd be. You got your plan, you got your idea, oh, we'll do this, and then we'll do that, and then it'll all just work out nicely. See, that's your plan. But it's not in a man to plan his way. There is an unseen, invisible hand that is governing and guiding your life. Even on the worst day of your life, the hand of God is all over you. His providential care and his purpose and plan is being worked out in your life. That's been true every day of your life. It was true before you were born, and it was true before you existed. It's why you exist. And those truths give great comfort, because when you're in a hard place, you say, my gosh, how did I get here? And then someone will say, well, God allowed me to get here. He planned for you to get here. 
Psalm 139. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance when you were sperm and egg. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Watch this. And in thy book, they were all written. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So are you in a hard place, in a tough place, on a brutal journey? It was ordained by God before you ever existed. That should comfort you. Because you're not there by mistake. You're not there by chance. You're not suffering randomly. If you're suffering, if you're in a trial, it's on purpose for a reason. It's just that the cards, you just, you just weren't dealt that card. No, God is up to something. God works strangely. My ways are not your ways. I've said this before in here. I've noticed when I set goals, plans, objectives, all my goals, plans, objectives are pain-free. They are free of pain. All, you you want to see my plan? You want to see my 90-day goals? You want to see my financial goals? You want to see my health? There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no adversity. I want my best life now. That's my plan. But you read the Bible, and he won't do that, because he's a good God. You're going to go through stuff. You're going you're to spend time in the school of disappointment. And you say, well, I, yeah, I was there, and I took that course. Yeah, but there's some more courses. Yeah, but I don't want to go back. Well, you don't have a choice. And that's why C.S. Lewis said that he, he came into the kingdom, kick, came into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming. He didn't want to come. I want to say this to you. They showed up at the beginning of the barley harvest. You know why? It was the plan of God. They didn't show up three months before the barley harvest because if they had shown up three months, they would have been in trouble. They showed up at the beginning. Can I show you something real quick? In, um, where am I? Uh, go to Deuteronomy. Uh, go to Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 22. Let me tell you why this is significant. Deuteronomy 24, verse... 19, you see the impeccable timing of God in your circumstances and in their circumstances. 24.19, Deuteronomy. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, you know what a sheaf is? Before they had balers, you know, the guys would come through and they'd take the wheat and they'd make a sheaf and they'd wrap it up and they'd, they'd be out in the field. So, when you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, watch this, for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, and you, you shall not go over the boughs again. In other words, if you got, you've gone through it once, and, you know, and then you go back, oh, man, there's more olives on the ground. Don't you go back and get them. Why not? It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. Why not? Oh, it's for the alien. The orphan, the widow, those in need, those who are desperate, those who have no hope, those who have no provision. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I am commanding you to do this thing. When they, would, uh, when they would do the barley harvest, and this was true of all the fields, whether it was barley or wheat, they would not harvest the whole land. They would, they would not harvest the edges. It could be a quarter of a field. Now, not every man obeyed God, but Boaz obeyed God on this. And what we're going to see in 2.1 is that this destitute woman shows up at barley harvest, and we're going to see next week at this point, because I'm out of time, we're going to see in chapter 2 that because there's a barley harvest and there's a guy named Boaz who is living in obedience to God, he is going to make provision to her beyond anything she could ever ask or think, and her whole life is going to be changed in the life of Naomi, and they thought they were done and they thought they were finished. John Flavel, in his book, The Mystery of Providence, which he wrote back in the 1600s, says this, We find a multitude of providences of God that are timed to the minute. That had they occurred just a little sooner or a little later, they would have mattered little in comparison with what they now do.
Certainly it cannot be chance, but counsel that so exactly works in time. So Abraham has Isaac on the altar. God said, I want you to sacrifice your son. He's got the knife. He's bringing it down. And he is told, go ahead. Go ahead. What's the problem? Go ahead and kill that kid. Is that the voice he heard? He's got the knife. He's bringing it down. Stop. Oh, he just happens because the sacrifice had to be made. But at that exact moment, he looks over in the thicket, and what's there? A ram. Ah, God has provided the sacrifice. He takes Isaac off in the nick of time and puts. In this book, The Mystery of Providence, he talks about some believers in France that were being persecuted. One guy was being chased by persecutors who were going to kill him. He's running for his life. He finds an outdoor oven used for baking. He climbs into it, and immediately a spider begins to weave a web on the outside of that oven. And within minutes, his pursuers come. They look. Don't even bother to look inside because there's a spider web, and obviously he couldn't be in there. But he was in there because God sent the spider in the nick of time. He's got all kinds of stories. Read George Mueller's biography, which I read all the time and talk about all the time. Every page of this is the nick of time. Let's close. i got to close. I'm out of time. Let me give you uh, one, two, three, four. Let me give you five principles out of this passage. Number one, the school of disappointment is not a dead end. It is the path to the divine appointment. I'll say it again. The school of disappointment is not a dead end. It is the path to the divine appointment. Number two, it is imperative to graduate from the school of disappointment. So stay teachable. Don't get bitter. And we get disappointed, guys. We can easily become like Naomi. It's imperative to graduate from the school of disappointment, so stay teachable. Principle three, if you are on the rough road, stay with it and trust God for his perfect timing. I'll say it one more time. If you are on the rough road, stay with it and trust God for his perfect timing. I'm often asked, and I know Chuck is, how, how did you get into publishing? How could you? Pu- There's so many guys who want to write, and I'm so blessed that I get to write, and they'll publish my stuff. How'd you get into it? How'd, you, how'd that work? How'd that work? You want to know how it worked? I, 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 I had a meeting with a guy I had never met who knew nothing about me. We met for 15 minutes. He was a publisher. At, he was the publisher, John Van Deest at Multnomah Press. Didn't know me from Adam. I gave him a two-page outline of a book I wanted to do to help men be leaders of their family. He read it in 15 minutes. He said, what do we have to do to get this done? And six months later, I had a book in print. That doesn't happen. You know what God will do? And we're going to see this next week, and I'm probably giving away my thunder. You know what God will do? When you're in a tight place and you're deeply, man, I'll never get out of here. You know what God will do? God will cause someone in you to come into your life who knows nothing about you, who has no relationship with you, and God will give you favor with them, and they will support you and make a way for you. That's what Boaz did with these folks. Well, I don't know how that can happen. Well, you don't know how. Just let God do it. So you see, if that's what God will do, do you have to scheme? Do you have to manipulate? Do you have to lie to make something happen? Do you have to have to? No, just follow him. Let him promote you. Number four, don't dictate to him. Submit to him. When I say don't dictate to him, I mean, when you pray, don't say to God, Lord, I'm in this and I'm so tired. Just get me out by April. Oh, Lord, I'm just trusting. I'm just speaking a word here. I'm just rima in a word. I'm speaking into existence. Don't, hey, watch that nonsense. You don't speak anything into existence. God does. If you understand some of this prosperity nonsense I'm talking about, don't put time frames on God. Don't dictate to God. Lord, I'm in this, this despair. Just get me out by April. And you know what happens? Lord, get me out by, you pray that every day. And then April comes and you're not out of it. You know what happens? You get bitter at God. God never told you he'd have you out in April. 
You know what you say? You say, not my will, but thine be done. Would I like out in April? Yeah, but if I need to be three more Aprils, Lord, I submit. Don't dictate to God, submit to God. Last principle. If you are sitting on the throne of your life, step down and step off. He is the king of your life. I'll say it again. If you are sitting on the throne of your life, step down and step off. He is the king. And he knows what he's doing. And he always makes a way out for people who think they're finished. It's called resurrection power. That's what he does. Now to him who is able to do, exceeding abundantly beyond anything we ever ask or think, to him be glory and honor. That's our God. That's our Savior. We bow before you, Father. We've all been in this school of deep disappointment. Some guys are in the middle of it right now. They're tired. They're weary. It's like they're going from Moab up along the, the Dead Sea, and it's 120 degrees, and they got a cross, and there's hardly any provision. There's no food. They're out of bucks. Now they got to go up those hills and make their way up. It's just exhausting. We just get worn out. We just get tired of being tired. We just get fatigued in our hearts and our spirits, and we're just, we're just weary. So when we get weary, the danger is to start scheming. Help us not to scheme. Help us to submit. Not my will. Thine be done. We can trust you with our lives. You're not finished with us. You love to take dead men and resurrect them. You love to take dead dreams and make them better. We trust in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.